We've been walking through the series the previous couple of weeks called The Way of Jesus, and Pastor J.D. kicked us off with building a foundation on Christ, and our anchor passage being in Matthew chapter 7, which reassures us that as storms come, we are ready to stand. And this morning, we're going to dive into a topic that is near and dear to my heart because it is as Andrew, he spoiled so many of my illustrations, by the way. Like, it's not going to have the effect that it was going to, I promise. Um, uh, but I am a husband and a dad, and so talking about family is something that is deeply embedded in me right now because I have three young kids, I'm married, I'm in family ministry, kids ministry, um, so many hours of the week, so it's something that is hugely prevalent in my walk right now. And so we undoubtedly are encountering storms in culture in regards to the institution of family. Um, there is no question about that. And so I'm going to anchor our time in a passage in Genesis, but to give clarity, I'm going to use the, the titles or the labels family, togetherness, and community kind of interchangeably this morning. Um, so if you hear those three words, then try to, to picture, piece together those ideas and concepts um, in your mind. And so I'm going to read Genesis uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. Um, I'll be reading from the NIV, and then I'm going to pray before we dive in. Um, So Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. If you would pray with me. Father, we're just going to continue to lean into your presence this morning. Holy Spirit, I would ask that all the hearts in this room just be softened, prepared to receive the words that you have this morning. God, I pray especially for the wounds that may be uncovered, the difficult, uh, the difficult labels, words that may be used, that may strike up different memories, different things we've all walked through. God, would you prepare those hearts to encounter that this morning? And then most importantly, encounter you with that. Jesus, we love you and we thank you and it's in your name. Amen. So, as Pastor Andrew already ruined my first illustration... I am a, uh, I'm a proud husband, my best friend, my wife, Kelsey. Um, we've been married almost, hold on, six years. Go. Got it right. I get the, I'm so good at anniversaries, guys, um, that I always confuse the, uh, the dating anniversary and marriage anniversary. Uh, so I, I'm kidding. I've never forgotten my anniversaries. Um, so uh, we've uh, been married almost six years, and like I mentioned, uh, three young kids, Elijah, Anthony and Rosalie, two boys and a girl. Um, it is such a blessing to be their dad and to be married to such an incredible person. Shouldn't have looked at her, I'll cry. Um, and so when I think about all the roles and jobs and duties I have in my life, uh, being a husband and dad are by far the richest and most fruit-producing ones that I have. And I say that absolutely loving to be a pastor. I absolutely love being a pastor, leading a team, teaching, equipping, all those things, but being a dad and a husband are the ones that um, 
are the ones that are just the richest for me, that I, that I see the most fruit. And I think I've, I've garnered that wisdom from Pastor J.D. and Andrew and other dads on staff that if I am stewarding being a husband and a dad well, then I'm setting myself up to be a pastor well. Um, and so it, it's, it struck me as kind of ironic or funny that those, those two roles on the other side of being really fruitful and rich can bring a lot of tension and, and a lot of weight. Um, and sometimes that, that weight and that tension is because of the responsibility with those roles. Um, but that weight and tension can also have, depending where it's coming from, which we're going to dive into, that weight and tension can also not be a good thing. And so I, was, I found myself asking, why is that? And it's, it didn't take much of a search to look on my phone, on my computer, to see that there are so many avenues and outlets that want to lend voice to the roles of husband and dad in culture. It doesn't take uh, too long or too much of a deep dive to see that from social media posts, news outlets, blog posts, anywhere else online that, on the internet that the vast majority of the world and specifically American culture is enamored with the institution of family. Absolutely, um, it is almost always a hot button topic to some degree and whether it's roles in the household, relationship in the family, husband to wife, kids to parents, it's, it's really striking how loud our culture is about it and how on a, on a pedestal they are to tell us how we should operate in our homes, how I should love my wife, how I should allow my kids to engage with me and so on. And because over the past few decades, it, it may be more Culture hasn't exactly presented a strikingly consistent view of family. Depending on the decade, you can go back to a handful. Um, it's almost been different every decade. Something's changed. It's like a roller coaster. It's like the culture can't make up its mind about what the family is, what the family should be, what the purpose of the family is, who's in charge of the family, who's not, all those things. They've gone so far as to do things that God has held sacred and dear and redefine them. They've redefined marriage. It's no longer a sacred covenant before the Lord and family for our culture. Even for some, it's become a cheapened exploit for different individualistic reasons. And the list could go on and on and on for that. But marriage is a sacred and covenant union for the Lord. Culture has presented us something very different. They've again, redefined how our kids are supposed to interact with us, how we're supposed to interact with our kids. They just keep feeding information. Again, it doesn't take a long time to just sit on Facebook, Insta, a blog, whichever outlet you choose and see. Somebody has an opinion somewhere about how you should be a husband, a dad, a mom, a wife, and how you should raise your kids. Especially having been in family ministry for the past about four years, um, a lot of people, a lot of places, outlets have ideas about how kids should be raised and stewarded. Um, there is a lot of loudness in regard to that. And as a husband and dad, this can be incredibly daunting to walk into every day. Like, who's going to tell me something new or something different today about how I should love my wife and father my children? Um, and it's because I take these roles so devoutly and faithfully that I want to steward them well. And so I'm, I, I love to read and learn. And one thing you'll learn about me is I can never have enough books. Um, we recently got some more bookshelves in our house and I quickly showed my wife, hey, there's more space. Do you know what that means? More books. Um, I, yeah, she didn't agree. Um, but it's okay. Sanctification's a process. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> 
And so how am I expected to balance and approach this? How am I supposed to walk into this chaos that culture throws at me every day about how to be a dad? How am I supposed to be in the world but not of it? And Jesus says that in John 17, 16. And maintain any level of stability or sanity or confidence in who God has called me to be as a husband and a dad. And in a recent season, it became really strikingly clear to me, and I love how God's, his providence, he, he sets up seasons in our life for us to walk through different things. And it's always hindsight looking back, oh, I see why God was cultivating and refining these things in my heart as a dad and a husband to prepare my family for this. Um, I love how the Lord loves and cares about us so deeply um, that he has everything taken care of. It became strikingly clear in one simple and profound question. Who am I listening to? Don't worry, it's that simple. Who am I listening to? What am I giving my attention to? What am I allowing myself to ingest on a daily basis? What ideas and concepts of fathering, marriage, family, community am I nourishing on the day-to-day? I want you to take a moment and ask yourself that. Who are you listening to? I love how in his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer lays out the plan of attack that that Satan employs upon us to cause distrust, disruption, chaos, not only within us internally, but especially in how we relate to God and other people. He starts off with the devil implants an idea. Think Genesis 3 which when nurtured gives rise to disordered desires. Wait a second, that fruit does look good, but if you backtrack, it was firstly an idea. Did God really say that? Then that nurtured, disordered desire fosters and creates a sin-filled heart, an individualistic rise, and then when you get that together, you have an individualistic, misguided society and culture feeding chaos, deception, and disruption. How am I supposed to recognize and combat those lies that I hear from culture about my family? In his book, he appeal, uh, Comer appeals to the story of Jesus being tempted in the desert by Satan and takes note of two primary tactics that Jesus employs to combat those lies. Or what some of us are familiar with as spiritual disciplines, he mainly highlights quiet prayer and scripture as the primary means that Jesus uses to combat Satan's lies. Comer says, simply put, I need to read my Bible and sit in quiet prayer frequently. Daily to fill my mind with God's truth and strengthen our relationship in prayer before culture bombards it with lies fueled by Satan. And I'm going to quote him again. So I love the way he says it. Um, He's a much more talented writer than I am. First thing upon waking, if at all possible, before you touch your phone, which admittedly, that was a hard one for me for a long time. First thing, because my phone was my alarm, right? I'd roll over, click, and it's in my hand. And it's like, oh, I have four notifications. Let's start working at 5.15 in the morning, right? So if at all possible, first thing I'm waking, before you touch your phone, open your browser, the dial on your radio, your TV, just spend time in quiet prayer and scripture. Soak your mind and imagination in Jesus' truth before they are assaulted with lies. 
Further towards the end of the book, I love the way he lays out, in addition to those key practices, um, a key component of our combat against Satan and his ploys is family. And as I mentioned, I'm going to use family, community, and church interchangeably. And he describes the church family in this way, a community of deep relational ties in a culture of individualism and isolation. So we can see from the first definition that, that church, family, togetherness is supposed to look radically different. A community of holiness in a culture of hedonism. Hedonism, pleasure-seeking. Our culture is huge behind doing what makes you feel good, what looks good, all those things. The church, the community, our family is to be holy, is to be pure, and I don't mean perfect. I mean we're supposed to be distinct and set apart. And lastly, he defines it with a community of order in a culture of chaos, because I don't know, for some of you, having three young children, uh, my oldest is about to be in kindergarten, there's not a lot of order sometimes. There's a little bit of chaos in the mornings, truth be told. There's a little bit of chaos at bedtime. There's a little bit of chaos throughout the day, too. Um, So seeing that that God's design, his heart behind what he has for the family is a place of peace, a place of stability, a place of order. And I don't mean um, in terms of perfectionism and systems, but a sense of of peace to where I, I think... It doesn't take much of a, um, I knew I should have. So I, I did you all a favor by writing out a full manuscript. I have a tendency to rabbit trail, so I'm going to rabbit trail real quick. It, it's, it's along the lines of you go to the checkout at the grocery store, and is it just a peaceful, easy thing? Like do you just walk up to the register or the belt and place your items on the belt? No. As soon as you walk up there, you have temptation to all the good sour Skittles. Come on. Sour Skittles. Um, I'll pray for you if you like the regular Skittles, sour is where it's at. (laughs) On that side, on the other side, you have all the tabloids, the magazines, other publications of some sort to guide you and distract you and to lend voice. Hey, pay attention to this person. Hey, do this. Read this. Again, voices, chaos, here, here, here. I don't know if you've ever tried to, but you can't drink from more than one cup. It doesn't work. You're going to drown yourself. You can't breathe. It's got to be from one source. And I was raised by, uh, I was raised by two, and truly, uh, two truly incredible parents. And I'm not just saying that to get brownie points because they're sitting in the back of the middle <laughs> section there. Um, and also because they just watched my kids for uh, a couple days while my wife and I had a, had a break. Um, but I was, I was honestly raised by two incredible people. Um, that came into our family with my sister and I. I have one older sibling, and um, they came from their own family stories and, and built the family they did. Um, it was truly incredible, and we had a lot of things we did as habits uh, as a young kid. So I was raised in Marble Falls, about an hour or so northwest of here, out in the hill country, really beautiful town. Um, and uh, we had a lot of uh, things that were, that were staples or fixtures in our home growing up, um, but there were two non-negotiable fixtures that stuck out to me when I was praying about this morning. And I remember the wooden, brown, rectangle dinner table um, that's still in my parents' home. Um, man, I, I love, every time I walk in there and look at that table, just vivid memories pop up. Some good, some bad. Um, but I, I love that that was the one that stuck out vividly to me because when I was young, 
we always ate dinner together. We always ate dinner together. And now being a dad and a husband with a family, seeing and experiencing the power in that um, has been remarkable. And the other one is I was always in church on Sunday. Always in church on Sunday, sitting next to my mom. And from those two vivid memories, the table was particularly formative for me because it was a space and time that all four of us were together. Which, I mean, we, as my sister and I grew, we got extracurriculars, uh, dad's work got busy, different things. It, it was such a valuable time for all four of us to be together as a family. Um, something significant happened in those moments that, again, it took years and, and experience and wisdom to realize what those things were. It was a time that we got together and we communicated, and then also, I'm dating myself a little bit, we weren't as easily distracted because smartphones weren't invented then. Actually, I think the only cell phone we had was, do you remember the old zipper phones plugged into the cigarette lighter in the truck? And so I just remember being floored, like, Dad, we can call Mom from the truck. Or moving, anyway. Um, so we were at the dinner table together, and we weren't easily distracted, so we were communicating with each other. We were sharing stories about our day. Dad was telling me about work. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time with mom as a young kid. She was stayed home in my younger years. Um, but still, it was such a valuable, vibrant time that we, we talked, we asked questions, the stories, um, and occasionally laughter and tears, of course. But that, that's where, I mean, those are such refining moments to walk through all those things as a family together. Um, it was a place of instituting values for our family. For, for my sister and I as young kids growing up, it was a place to where we could weigh lies against truth. Different things we'd hear at school from teachers or friends, and if we described a behavior from the day or from a particular story that my parents were prompt to praise us for a job well done or quick to point out that, hey, that's not how we act. That's, that's not how we operate outside of this house. Um, we stand for certain things. And being in church every Sunday, that, that second fixture that stuck out, I was, I was raised Southern Baptist, so I was always sitting in a pew. Um, and I remember, depending on the age that I was when I was a kid, I was either really pumped to go to big church, or I was like, oh no, I gotta sit in the pew again. And so, admittedly, I, I did a lot of artwork on offering envelopes <laughs> for a long time, um, sitting next to my mom. Um, the, I, I use the offering envelopes for a different reason now, I promise. <laughs> it, but it was so formative to have those two fixtures. And those are just the two that stuck out to me. Um, because within those two things, it showed that our family had distinct characteristics. Um, and admittedly, our, our family, I was raised by two Christian parents who followed Jesus. They followed Jesus my entire life. And so that was the driving force of those fixtures. This is our family. This is what we stand for. This is who we are. This is what we're here for. And so every one of us in here in some way, shape, or form is a product of the tension of family. And I say tension because it could be tension from your family of origin, uh, the family you were raised in, and it could be that tension from culture um, that we've already previously chatted about. I love how Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, refer refers to the family of origin's impact on us in this way. All of our families are broken and marred by the effects of sin. Even if we have a good one, none of us have exemption from those effects because even in really good families, there still arises tension at times because we are all affected by Genesis 3. 
And in addition to all of us having a family of origin in common, we were all raised in some place at some time. Um, we've all been single or were single it, or currently single in our walk with Jesus. And the weight of singleness could have become heavy and is causing attention for you because there is no doubt that culture wants to barrage singles with their own unique weight of what is encouraged, supported, fed to them about how to operate and live as a single in our culture. I mean, that doesn't take, that doesn't take much of a scroll on anything to know that our singles are carrying such a, ma- such a heavy, heavy weight from what our culture is feeding them. But I love how in the brief collection of essays in the book, Whole in Christ, a team of pastors and theologians approach the topic of biblical singleness in this way. David Platt says, today almost half of the adult population in our country is married. Nearly half of adults have either never married are now widowed, separated, or divorced. People are staying single longer than ever before in our country, and as a result of these things, single adults are almost as common as married adults today. And I think we're right to heavily invest in marriage and family ministry. Absolutely. In, ch- in family and marriage and children's ministry, but we can't miss the incredible opportunity to minister to our singles. Because I, I don't, again, I, Andrew can't spoil this illustration, so I'm going to hold on to it here in a little bit. So we need to keep pouring into our singles. And if not family of origin or singleness, culture is absolutely pouring a heavy weight of confusion and chaos by redefining marriage and the roles within that that I've already briefly said. And furthermore, into parent-child relationships about what ought to be in those and the weight that culture is placing upon individual success and gain has perverted the intent and opportunity of a solidified unity, a solidified family unit and team. Because I think we could all agree that American culture does support individualism. It does support personal gain uh, to a very extreme degree. And so there's no question that Western society is highly individualistic and the family hasn't escaped the negative impacts of that. And Another great resource in his book, Family Revision, Jeremy Pryor says this about our misunderstanding uh, in the West on families. At the most fundamental level, the belief underlying this Western philosophy is that the family should serve the individual more than the individual should serve the family. Further, he states about our focus on self in the West, everyone tends to withdraw from the family and it makes less and less sense to make personal sacrifices. The family is not the environment through which you live your life, but it's a temporary disposable environment that is designed to be transcended. So we all have common ground with the environment of family to one degree or another, but now I want to ask, why is family such a big deal in the first place? Like, I don't think culture and society just picks a random idea, concept, or theme from Christianity and runs with it. Uh, I do think culture tends to attack the truth. Yes, but why family? Why is it such a hot button topic? Uh, yeah, so this one, um, as Andrew already briefly mentioned, I enlisted in the Marine Corps in 2014. Um, hard to believe it's already been 10 years almost. And shipped to boot camp in June of that year. And aside from the natural expectation of what that experience was gonna be like and what it was like, Stressful, physically demanding, mentally taxing, and honestly pretty psychologically just challenging to go through. 
um, I was struck by something in, in reflecting over this about how many different individuals it brought together from all across the country. And admittedly, I was a little bit older. I was 26 and I enlisted, so I was a little bit older than quite a few of those guys were. Um, and also, I will have to say that I, was, I went to boot camp in San Diego, so I'm what you'd call a Hollywood Marine. It doesn't, it doesn't take long for a Paris Island Marine to point that out real quick, but um, we have mountains. They don't. Um, <laughs> and so my boot camp platoon was just shy of 80 recruits, and like I said, we varied in age geographic upbringings, family cultures, personalities, I mean, core characteristics of who we were as people, very, very different. And you bring us together in very tight quarters for three months under one roof. I was like, oh goodness, this is going to be hard. I didn't bank on this part of the challenge. I I was focused on so many other aspects of it. But amidst all those differences between us, through intense focused training, Day in and day out, we were transformed from something very different when we got to boot camp and then when we graduated. And we turned into a unified team to a unified team that was equipped to combat threats. And so for all of us in the room this morning, even acknowledging that we all have different families of origin, we all have different current life circumstances, different upbringings, um, moms, dads, husbands, wives, you name it, We bring together all of those variances and we face a common threat. We face a common tension in that the devil is attacking all institutions, as I said, within our faith. All all aspects of our faith are attacked to some degree, but namely the family through cultural influence. So how do we approach this together? What do we do? And falling in line with Comer's direction laid out earlier to combat those lies, the example given from Jesus in the desert, I want to dive into scripture on the purpose and intent for family and why Satan wants to dismantle it so badly. So what does the Bible say about family? And so the biblical narrative begins in in Genesis with God creating earth, heaven, seas, animals, plants, you name it, all those things good in the very good humankind, mankind in his image. But the verse is already read that I want to key in on is 2, 15 through 18, and I'm going to read it again for us. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So God goes from repeatedly referencing very aspects of creation as good, 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 very good, And then the narrative gets to 2.18, and it's not good. What isn't good? That man's alone. The man should not be alone. Here in the early pages of Scripture, we see the theme of family, community, togetherness begin to unfold. And soon in Genesis 3, as most of us know, in Genesis 3, a major shift happens, a major disruption. There's a deep fracture in the relationship between God, creation, and people, and between people And it's brought about by a lie. Genesis 3, 1b, the end of that verse, shows us the first lie. Did God really say? Did God really say? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. If you go back to that verse, he definitely said, you're not going to eat from that tree. So Satan lies. 
Mankind entertained the first lie, and that lie gave birth to a disordered desire. And from that disordered desire, we see in the coming chapters of Genesis that the first people were ridden with sin, chaos, disruption, disorder, violence, spiraled out of control, got so bad that, as most of us know, in Genesis 6, enter Noah and his family, God's going to flood the earth. He's done with it. It got so bad. But take note of that. Wait, Noah and his family. Does God abandon the theme of family togetherness and unity? Does God abandon us even though it's broken? Not even close. So we saw in in 2.15 through 18 that that theme begins to unfold. And then whenever it gets so bad and we think that God just stopped there. This is bad if the entirety of creation is completely perverted, disrupted, and is turned on each other. He doesn't. I still have plans for my people, his people, his family. He still has plans for them. So he doesn't abandon that theme. And even though we believe the lie and cause the fracture, God chooses to enact redemption through what we would see from worldly lenses as a lost and broken cause. God chooses to paint his picture of redemption for the world through the lens of his promise to Abraham and his family to bless the world. And I want to read Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Abraham is one of my absolute favorite stories in Scripture. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. From Abraham's family lineage... From God working through family would come the ultimate mending. Through Abraham in Genesis 12, we see the Lord make a promise that he's going to bless the earth. Again, floors me. He didn't give up. He didn't abandon. He didn't retreat. I'm staying. I'm going to be present. I'm going to be with my people. He blesses the earth through Abraham and his family. And after Abraham comes his offspring and that family gives birth to the nation, Israel, and the people of Israel who are formed in 12 tribes, or you could say 12 large extended families. And similar to so many of our families of origin, the biblical family, God's people are wrought with a roller coaster of life experiences. Mountains, valleys, exile, freedom, exile, freedom. We arrive in the Gospels. After seeing all that buildup of tension, and one of the, I mean, if you've never sat and read through Scripture at any point, it is incredibly intense and dramatic. So if you take in all that experience, up, down, pain, loss, separation, confusion, chaos, enslavement, bondage, again, where is God in all of that? He's right in the middle of it. He's present. He's with his people. And all of that build in the Old Testament is pointing to something very, very big. And so I love in preparation, I honestly, truth be told, I haven't read a genealogy in the Bible in a minute, like actually read it. Um, it, it didn't take me long. I got struck and I got stuck. I wasn't going to use this, but I just, God just kept bringing me back to it. Matthew 1.1, the first pages of our New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God was not only in the middle of all that we had done to cause fracture, separation, distance, disruption. His covenantal faithfulness 
is covered to a T. He not only was just walking us through all of those painful and just hard things in different environments and seasons, he had something better than we could ever imagine is a cure for our condition. Some of the headlines at the tops of your Bibles uh, could read the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. It is through Jesus that God's family is ultimately put right. It is through Jesus that God's family is ultimately put right. That family relational chasm caused by sin is bridged by the cross. And I can say it with so much confidence and certainty that no matter what your family of origin was, is your current situation, the cross has bridged every single relational chasm caused. No matter how deep, no matter how wide, no matter how severe, the cross is sufficient to repair that. The beginning of the full, reverse, the full reversal to the downfall in Genesis 3 and the redemption of it's not good for man to be alone because God brought us together and then we just, we just tore it down. He's fully redeeming that. It comes full circle in that God definitively says, I'm here to bring you back into the family you were meant to be the whole time with me at the center. Jesus' death and resurrection solidify victory and hope for God's family. Through the Holy Spirit, we are now empowered to live out an already not yet designed for his people. So even in the midst of the tension, so we, we, we're in Jesus and there's this tension with the world. We're in it, but we're not of it. How are we going to do that? He said, I've got it. I'm just going to be with you. I'm not going to be in a temple in a, in a special place anymore. I'm going to be right here. So whenever I wake up and I hear lies and get onslaughted by what culture wants me to think about being a dad and a husband, God just knocks. He's right here. He's not in a far off distant place anymore. He has brought us back into that family we were meant to be the whole time. He ensures his family is taken care of by their heavenly father and namely that he is present with us. And I love how just the Bible unfolds as such a beautiful big story Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it encompasses some of the most well-known literature on families uh, for Christian households. And the picture is painted, if you read it, it doesn't take long to realize that it is so very different than the family that culture has presented to us. It's consistent. It's ordered. It's framed by that chasm-bridging love of Jesus. The Christian household is saturated by the love of Jesus. The marriage relationship is displayed in a wholly unique covenantal union before the Lord, completely opposite to the world's view. When I said I do to my wife, it, it was an agreement with the Lord, with her, and in front of our church. And that union is saturated with Jesus' love and mutual submission that has seemed perfectly in the way Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. And children are admonished to respect and obey their parents as we are in the Lord. And we see from all those lies and struggles and tension that culture brings, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But it's against the rulers, authorities, powers of the dark world and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Intercultural ideologies of how marriage should work, households should work, Exalt yourself, expend your family for the sake of your personal gain, 
Satan wants chaos, disorder, and lies about the family. Just to be merely entertained at the start. Just start to question, start to doubt. Maybe that would make me a better dad. Maybe this would make me feel better. That's why scripture admonishes us to take every thought captive. And we do that by saturating our mindsets around what family is and isn't with the word of God, not what culture says. So what voice are we listening to? I've spoken a lot to dads because that's my experience. But moms, wives, sisters, daughters, what voice are you listening to? Who are you giving your attention to? We all have a family of origin to bring to the table when we come here on Sundays and gather throughout the week. And again, uh, Pete Scazzaro says this in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, Pastor Megan and, and Pastor Chris led us through an incredible course through that um, in a recent season. I would encourage you to dive into that, um, the work uh, by Scazzaro. Unfortunately, it's not possible to erase the negative effects of our history. This family history lives inside all of us, especially in those who attempt to bury it. The price we pay for this flight is high. Only the truth sets us free. That truth is present in this room. That, that freedom is present here. Jesus says in John 14, 6, quite clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can't erase what our families have been through, but we can walk in healing, and we can live in light of the relational freedom that is brought by Jesus. We're not bound by the effects of sin, on our family, Jesus has released us from all bondage that is affected by it. And following in the way of Jesus, he brings you into the family that we as people were always meant to be in from the early pages of Genesis, that, heavenly, that our heavenly father is at the center of us. Y'all, we can, it's quite simple of how we can eternally impact Austin. We, you can eternally impact Austin by living in light of your true identity as a son or daughter in God's family. How do you do this? By showing Austin something different. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands. Christian, uh, children, respect and obey your parents. Singles, live in the gift God has blessed you with by walking in purity, bringing him glory. Grandparents, connect, mentor, and pour into younger generations. For young families and parents, may we heed the direction of Micah 6.8 to walk humbly with God and one another. I want to go ahead and I want to welcome all the elders, pastors, and life group leaders, if you're here in the sanctuary this morning, uh, to come down front. Um, it, it's eye-opening to just to reflect on who, who God is, what and who he's called us to be, the different stories that have brought us here, all the different things that, that we have been through. But I absolutely love the promises that, that God has given us. God's family is a radical alternative to what the world presents in terms of family. And in God's, in, because in God's family being so radically different, there is redemption. There's no record of wrongs. There's, there's true wholeness, true belonging for everyone. We all have a seat at the table because of the person and work of Jesus. Nobody's left out there. Everybody has a seat at the table because of Jesus. 
Calvin says, it's a wonderful and ineffable consolation to know that God does not regard us as we are in ourselves, but as we are in his son. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, but is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Church, hear this. Access has been given to every one of us. You are no longer alone. You have family here this morning. Access has been given to all of us because of Jesus. God wants us in communion with him and his people. He wants you in this family with his people so badly that he gave everything to ensure it was possible. For all of us to taste true belonging and true acceptance, God didn't send his son in the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Even in the midst of our brokenness, yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Of our fractured families of origin with all the roller coasters of a life experience tainted by sin, God stepped in and said, come and see what real life is, what real family is, what real belonging is. That's right here in this room this morning. God's family is distinct in how we love, how we forgive, how we relate to one another throughout all of life's circumstances. And I want to encourage you that if you're in the room this morning and you have never confessed Jesus says, Lord, repent and believe the good news that you have access to this family. If you're here with us this morning and you're church shopping around Austin and have landed at Antioch, I want to encourage you to stop shopping and make Antioch your home. Make Antioch your family. Do it today. If you've been a, a long time uh, member, attender of Antioch and you're not plugged into a life group, there's life group leaders down here this morning. Come down this morning and get plugged in today. If you're deeply connected in a life group and not currently on a serve team at Antioch, it doesn't have to be the kids team. It could be. I want to encourage you to come down and get plugged in today. Y'all, God is on the move in Austin and there is a place for you to serve. And so I want to encourage you to come and be a part of that this morning. So guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open us, I'm going to close us in prayer. Um, guys, I want you to know that there's been moments, there's been times in my life where I haven't felt accepted, I've felt excluded, I didn't measure up to this level of success so I couldn't be with these people, I, I had done too many things that were not okay so I couldn't go to this place, uh, I couldn't be seen in this place. I love how bright the lights are so that everybody can see that you can come down here and you are hugged, welcomed, and accepted. So as I'm praying, please, Holy Spirit, embolden hearts in this room to come down here and receive the healing that Jesus brings. So guys, if you would join me in prayer, and then this space is open for us, church. Father, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the gift that is earth-shattering, that, that we didn't do anything for. God, you just gave it. God, I, I pray for all the, the brokenness in the room. If even just the term family has triggered a sad or fearful or just regretful feeling, Father, would you bring those hearts forward? Would you awaken in those hearts that there, there is healing, there is acceptance, there is wholeness? This family is for all of us, God. And Father, we thank you that you are so present. 
Lord Jesus, my heart is full being in your presence with the family that you have given us this morning. It's in Jesus' name.